Um, it's been a weird week. Uh, I uh, have had car trouble. Um, one of the things that's really uh, been on my mind, though, is I, so I used to work retail, for those of you who do not know. And uh, I found out this week that one of the stores that I, I managed for the longest amount of time is, um, is actually now closing down. And it's, it's super weird to, uh, to I, I need a feelings wheel up here. Weird is not a great way to describe how I'm feeling about it. But it's, um, it's strange to, to uh, actually look at something that you, you work so hard to uh, build up and, and to, to change and to grow, and now it's, it's dissolving. But while I was thinking about that, I remembered this, this story that, um, that I heard, um, because um, during that time, I was always looking into uh, different businesses and, and trying to have, um, get ideas of how, how uh, we could uh, change and, and become more profitable. And, and um, one of the stories was uh, given to me as why you always want to be forward thinking. And um, it uh, goes like this. So it's about Blockbuster and Netflix. So in the year 2000, uh, Netflix approached Blockbuster and uh, offered to sell themselves for $5 million. And uh, the, the kind of um, short version of the story is that the, next, the Netflix uh, founders were, were laughed out of the room. Um, and the rest is, is now history. Blockbuster is gone. Netflix now has a show about Blockbuster on their streaming service. Um, yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Um, but uh, the more I actually went and investigated this, uh, Blockbuster actually made a very, very smart business decision there um, because Netflix was uh, already um, uh, several um, hundreds of million dollars in debt. They were set to lose another 50 million. And so when Blockbuster, if Blockbuster had purchased them at that time, they not only would have lost 100 million, but they would have acquired their debt as well. Um, what really caused Blockbuster to uh, fall into bankruptcy was their failure to embrace uh, the internet as a reality that was changing the world. Um, something that was staring them in the face and they continuously went back to their old models and failed to embrace this new invention that was getting more and more steam. And change is never easy. It really is never easy, especially when you're like Blockbuster and you have something really, really good going. That's right. <laughs> um, but when we're confronted with a truth that has completely altered and reshaped the world, we can either embrace it or not, but no one can go back to the way things were. And this is what I think Paul really experienced when Jesus unexpectedly revealed himself that day. A new reality had broken into history, and he couldn't go back to the way things were. And the reality that Paul saw was that God isn't only found in the presence of just one group of people or in, in one place, but it, he's found among all peoples.
Now, Paul was a very, very single-minded person. Uh, he, he had this real intensity about him, um, and you can see that in his letters. He's very opinionated. He is uh, very direct, um, and he, uh, he had one solid goal in his mind, and that was to make sure that um, the people of God remained pure. So in verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Um, before I go on, I want to just clarify, when he says Judaism there, he's not necessarily thinking of a religion in the way we think of it today. Um, he is, he's really thinking of a, a way of life, a way of being, and that way of being was following after Yahweh. And you did that by following those traditions. But the first Christians were a very real threat to Paul and to other Pharisees. Because not only was their movement spreading, but this impurity that the Christians were causing was because they were inviting people into their midst who normally weren't invited into the people of God. So sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes, all these people were being brought in. And they were lifting up a Messiah who was too weak to save himself from death. And so such an impurity, Paul thought, would only delay God from fulfilling his promises to his people. Yet Paul goes on to say, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Has anybody ever had one of those thoughts or those ideas that pop up, and then you suddenly shove it down and you say, oh my gosh, if, if I said that to somebody else, they'd think it was insane. I'd be a lunatic to them. Yes. That was what Paul was experiencing right now. Because if I were in that position, I wouldn't tell anyone either. Many of his contemporaries thought that the Gentiles had to become Jews. They had to become circumcised. They had to, um, they had to follow the, the food laws. They had to follow the Sabbath laws. They had to become ethnically Jewish to be considered part of God's family. And God would never, ever do something so radically new as to bring people into his family without them first going through those uh, ethnic rituals. Because a long time ago, God had made promises to the descendants of Abraham and then to those descendants who were honorary descendants, who adopted Jewish customs, he had made promises that they would, um, they would always be blessed by him, that he would take them 
out of oppression that he would always be in their midst and only in their midst. But this was so different and it was shocking. It was like if a, a CEO told their, their devoted employees that all the employee benefits that they receive, now customers and employees of other companies could receive as well. So with such an earth-shattering revelation for Paul, he needed to test whether this experience could withstand the scrutiny and contemplation, and he needed to know if this was legitimately from God. Because when we have experiences with God, they'll require these moments of clarity and, and quiet reflection and just relational exploration with him to work out their implications because when we have experiences with God, they're not always just for us because they can also be for others. In verse 17, Paul says that he didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before he was, but he went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. So, in Paul's day, Arabia stretched all the way down into Africa, into Egypt, and Arabia was where Mount Sinai was. And many New Testament scholars believe that he specifically chose Arabia because that's where Mount Sinai was. And he knew at this point in time that God would meet him there. And if you don't know or have forgotten, Mount Sinai is where Moses met with God, received the law and the instructions for the tabernacle, where God would be present with his people. That's also where Elijah went and met with God when he had lost his way and he found God, not in an earthquake or in fire, but in a whisper. And Mount Sinai is where Paul was affirmed in his new calling that was revealed to him by the risen Jesus. That for God to extend his love and promises to foreigners would mean that his love stretches beyond the bounds that Paul thought he knew. Because God reveals himself to all people in patient love, and he reveals himself to people for others to go and then reveal him through themselves in that same love. Now this probably says how big of a nerd I am, but uh, while, while really thinking about this sermon and, and wondering um, about this sermon, I, 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 was, I was really curious as to what Paul actually did when he, when he went into Arabia. I love these little offhanded comments sometimes that you find in, in New Testament letters um, where there's no explanation for them, and I love to wonder about those things. Um, I, I didn't know what you would really really do up on a mountain or how he would commune with God. And I'm, I'm sure he was soul-searching, of course, um, because if, if this new radical change had occurred, then that would mean that so much of, of what he thought about God was different. But that was okay, 
so I was thinking about Paul, and Paul was very, very deeply drenched and, and soaked in Hebrew scriptures. He was a Pharisee, and he was a Jew, so he accepted all of the prophets as, um, as, as people from Yahweh sent to his people. And so I was, I was thinking, well, maybe he, he meditated on, on the prophets. Maybe he meditated on the Psalms, like our call to worship today. It says, may the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule all the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. Maybe he, he realized from that that God was with those other nations. Maybe they didn't even know his name, but he was with them, guiding them. Or maybe he meditated on, on something like the book of Jonah, at the end of which you have an Israelite prophet who is, who is so angry that this foreign enemy nation that he, he so hated is saved after repenting at God's behest. And the reason he was angry was because he knew that God is merciful, loving, and concerned for all of his creation. And then I really thought of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and I thought of the Shema. The Shema is one of the core texts in, um, in Judaism. And uh, it's in Deuteronomy 6.4, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul really reworks the Shema a lot in his letters. Um, and he really reworks them mainly around themes of unity, the unity of God and, and solidarity of his, and the solidarity of his people. But in Romans 3, 29 through 30, I, I think he most explicitly uh, explains part of his reasoning for coming to accept all people, to accept the Gentiles into the promises of God. And it says, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. So for Paul, if the Shema is true and that God is one, then there is one God for the world and one family of God, period. There is one God who is for everything and everyone because of his great love, and there is one Christ. And so this is the big reason why Paul had a missionary mindset. To reveal Christ's love as manifested in himself for others, and then in turn in others. He became a, a physical epiphany of Christ for others. And two weeks ago um, was the last sermon in the, in the series, uh, Epiphany, and, and Jamin spoke 
on Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus's affirmation of Peter that this epiphany was from his father. And so this confession that was welling up inside of Peter came from his experiences with Jesus. And it showed us God's deep desire to commune with us within ourselves because he's fully relational and he wants us to know him intimately because he's not distant or unconnected or just coming down and stirring the pot every once in a while. But he is always around us and we are always in his presence. And so by, by going off by himself, Paul understood the intimate nature of God too. And by doing this, it's how he ended up recognizing that this revelation was from God. But Paul's epiphany from Christ expands on Peter's in a very important way. That those that we would least or, or never expect can also experience God, like for Paul, the Gentiles. So he had already known of this Christian group that had accepted people who, who were ritually impure. But through Paul, God's love was able to go out to a people who they thought were totally devoid of the presence of God. And maybe even more than this, but Paul's epiphany shows us that our experiences with God is not just personal, but it's also very social. So we read um, one of the accounts today uh, of Paul's, what's called Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Uh, that was our call and response. And in Acts, every time that revelation to Paul is recounted, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Or I am the one that you are persecuting. Not my church, not my people, but me. And I, I wondered how, how much that actually stuck in Paul's mind. Because that's a weird choice of words. Uh, because Paul, as he probably thought, was persecuting the church, not Jesus. Or his followers, not Jesus himself. But Jesus seems to mystically associate himself with his followers. So he is his people, and his people are him. And what this tells me is that Jesus really desires to be found in us and revealed through us into the world. And in a way that only each individual and community can do. And I really experienced this so clearly and so palpably in, in 2010 
um, I spent some time in Hawaii that, that summer, and um, I was really uh, able, to, able to have this picture in, 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 ingrained in my head of, of Christ. I, I spent time with a community of Christians. Uh, this community consisted of, of people who were, were unsheltered, and impoverished, but also of people who, who were very wealthy, and everyone was, people were, were hurt, they were harmed, there were people who were, who were well, and they all sought to work together and to meet each other's needs and to, whether it was physical or, or emotional, and they all had, had this great love for others that, that came from their experiences with Jesus, both their personal and social experiences. They had a desire for justice. They had a desire to, to reach people with that love. And it totally changed my perception of who Christ is and how he presents himself in the world, that he presents himself through his followers, and through those people who, who follow the Spirit of Christ. And so that's what I mean when I say Paul became this physical epiphany of Christ, is that he became this epiphany that he had. And I, I truly believe that we are called to, to embody our own experiences with Jesus whether our, our personal experiences or our community experiences. And Paul really shows that um, well in, in verses 18 through 24. He says, After three years, I, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. So Paul embraced that me, that, that Christ that he was told he was persecuting. And he became part of it. And those who follow Jesus are the ones who are called to actively reveal that presence in the world. God always works through people. That is how he has chosen to act. When, when Moses went to divide the Red Sea, God used him and told him the action to do with his rod. When he brought water out from the rock, he hit the rock. When God came himself, he came as a human. God always works through humans and in humans to reveal himself and who he is. And it's to encourage other followers and show that their labor isn't in vain. It's 
to name his working and moving in the world where it may be unknown. And again, it's ultimately to be that physical representation of Christ to actually be his body in the world. Now, the disciples in Jerusalem, when they heard about Paul, and they heard that now he is going around and and preaching this, this faith, I don't think they really just praise God because they were now safe. Um, I'm sure there was some relief there um, that this, this person who was hunting them is now on their side. But they praise God because of how Paul was now revealing Christ, that this, this intelligent, zealous, single-minded, once incredibly brutal and violent man who is now forgiven is bringing about Christ through his life. And he's going and he is creating these communities that are, are doing the same. We serve a God who is, as, as the prophets say, a, a living God who is constantly at work to bring that, that capital L life and newness into the world. And he does that through us. And when we refuse to share ourselves with others, we are refusing to share and reveal what God wants to bring into the world through us. And I've, I've really been thinking a lot um, after Tyree's murder, just I've really been thinking a lot about what, how people see Christ in me and how people may see Christ in, in, in the communities where I belong. And it's why I'm so drawn to Micah, because this, this is an organization that, that fights for justice, and it's in our faith, but it, it, the spirit of Christ is there among all those faiths in Micah. They are following the spirit of Christ, moving toward justice and reform. They are following that spirit, and they are acting as an epiphany to the world that God is with us and with all peoples. And I'm not sure how to say it anymore, (laughs) but we are God's revelation to the world. And we are the ones 
who show the world who Jesus is. And when we do not fight injustice, when we do not do what we can, because I know we can't always all do the same, but when the same things, but, but when we are not when we are not revealing Christ, when we are able to, and as we are able to, to the world, then what kind of Christ does the world see in us? Does, do they see a God who is forgiving, who is loving, who brings people who were once brutal and violent into the fold and, and hold on to them and love them dearly, or people from, from different faiths and ethnicities, or do they see a God who is stagnant and, and uninvolved? Let's pray. God, I just ask that you would bring healing to Memphis, that you would be in this city, that you would be seen in this city. And I thank you for the life and the lives of those who've come before us, who show us who you are in unique and beautiful ways. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.